0: Italian wine podcast. Chin-chin with Italian wine people.
1: Hello, this is the Italian wine podcast. My name is Monty Warden. My guest today is Adam Tita. Adam is CEO of VinePair, a New York-based publication on wine, beer and cocktails. Adam, welcome. Thanks for having me. So how did you, how
0: did you end up in New York first? Were you born and bred? I'm not born and bred. I'm actually from the South, from Alabama, and moved to New York 11 years ago. So how old were you then? I was 24. Why did you move? Love, money? Love, right? Did it work out? It did. Yeah, we're married. Right. (laughs)
1: Okay, that's great. Well, we can, this will turn this into a dating show, maybe. Exactly. Um, So you ended up in New
0: York, and how did you start Vine Pair? So I started in New York in the music business. So I worked at a record label. I was doing a job called A&R. And A&R is short for Artists and Repertoire. It's when you sign bands. And through the music industry, I got really into wine and cocktails and beer. Right? If you're, you're always entertaining, you're always meeting bands, going to shows. So I started a music series called Vivo in Vino, which took wine producers and paired them with you know big rock bands. And we did concerts all over the city. So go on, give us an example of a of wine pairing and a rock band. So we would do, for example, Freelance Wales with Mouton Noir. So, Freelance Wales. Yeah, Freelance Wales is a big indie rock band. We paired them with Mouton Noir. So the winemaker came. The band played a acoustic set for, you know, 150, 200 people. And then there'd be a conversation between the band and the winemaker about creativity, process, et cetera. And we were trying to show this connection between making music and making wine. But give us another one. Uh, so another one, we did the Antlers, which is another big indie rock band. Uh, and we paired them with Brooklyn Anology. So another really cool upstart, you know, indie winemaker, if you will. So those were really fun things to do we did them at a, a restaurant an Italian restaurant actually in the East Village called In Vino so on Sunday nights once a month we would completely clear the restaurant and we'd turn it into a concert venue so from that I who was coming to these events there was it hipsters Well hipsters yeah are you a Um, hipster sure you got a check shirt sure and and stubble i live in the east village i don't live in williamsburg though so i guess i'm not officially hipster but sure i'm a hipster i'm a millennial and so from that experience we were approached by a television producer to create a television show about travel and alcohol it was called drink me which is a Terrible name, but it's fine. It was a working title. We shot a pilot. Uh, It got picked up by Food Network and never aired. (laughs) So it was a really great experience. Such a big build up there. We got an audience of seven million on cable. Never never aired. But should it it have aired? Was it good or was it crap? I thought it was great. But I think you know, there's still this this feeling in the United States that drinks programming can't work on TV so Why, because of the alcohol thing or they don't think it's exciting enough the drinks programming that's been tried on TV ours wasn't like this but the drinks program that's been tried on TV is you know someone sitting with a glass of wine tasting with a winemaker etc that's very boring we're gonna do that later by the way let's do it you know so it that's very uh it's very boring to most viewers and so the belief among television executives was it couldn't work but Gary Vaynerchuk did something similar to well, that so Gary he? Gary and Gary's actually an investor in Vinepair I didn't know that he tried but it's YouTube so it's different right he he never was on you know network television but he was able to take his YouTube personality and become this massive investor in the United States and this massive advertising personality right so now his agency represents some of the biggest brands in the world and he's sort of bringing that social media personality to them but he was never able to really bring that to television and you know it, it's unfortunate I think that, that that's not his fault at all he has a lot of talent it's the fault of these television executives that just think that food is really easy to bring to TV and that drinks are a lot harder so when we were picked up actually there was an Another show at the same time picked up called beer chicks beer chicks bombed when it went on tv our show is very different but so then we just never got a shot i think it's it's gonna come around though you're gonna see another show in two or three years someone will try to put drinks back on TV. But how would you you do it in the future? You'd obviously retweak your idea without giving any trade secrets away. I mean, we would do a show that's very similar to the publication Vine Pair. So we believe in accessing these, these products through culture, through travel, through politics. So through larger stories. So not just seeing wine in this little boring old bubble. The publication, we don't like to just do straight up, this is a profile about a winemaker, and this is what his or her soil is like, and this is their family history. Instead, we try to tell a story of a place, a culture, talking about how it's being impacted by politics right now so to Donald know. Trump's got a winery so you could do him oh uh, we've done him oh really yeah. oh okay, well, okay. we've had, we had a bunch of I mean it's still every time he talks about the winery we see hundreds of thousands of people hit the story but we, we brought a bunch of psalms into a room and had them blind taste Trump winery wine did they like it that's disgusting. Oh, yeah, okay. oh, <laughs> I like a man who, who,
1: who, who um, sits on the fence. It's disgusting. Right, okay.
0: Well, um, And he doesn't drink, so that's probably why it is disgusting. <laughs> he can't taste it to know it's a terrible product. But, yeah, so I caught the bug. I really felt like there was this... Population, this growing population of millennials who were really interested in wine, beer, and cocktails, but there wasn't any publications that appealed to them. But
1: the, the stories behind it, yeah.
0: And, and and I was basing that on myself, right? There were no publications that appealed to me. So, well, was there not one?
1: I mean, why did, why don't you like the wine, without being too rude? Why don't you like the Wine Spectator, to, for example? Or, I think it's snobby as hell. Okay, what about Decanter?
0: I think it's snobby as hell.
1: What about um, I enthusiast, American enthusiast? I think wine enthusiast. Um,
0: you know, it talks to an older generation. It's not in touch, I think, with with current trends. It, it, I think when it tries to do it, it doesn't do it as effectively. What about wine blogs that are hip-and-training? Any that you like? I mean there are, I think there are some interesting wine blogs I think Wine Folly is interesting um, but I think it's for a geekier audience we, we were trying to talk to more normal person it's a lifestyle publication right so we talk about travel we talk about dining out we talk about bars hotels and we weave all that into, into drinks culture do you put any humor in there though? always we do lots of infographics we do lots of humor posts and then we do you know big long form trend pieces so for example tomorrow one of our monthly columnists is Jamie Good so tomorrow his column comes out and it's all about the trend of natural wine and how it needs to die and basically it's a warning shot where he's making the case which I think is really interesting that you know the industry especially the younger industry so now now my generation has become very obsessed with natural wine so you have a lot of producers doing the exact same thing that they did in the 80s and 90s with Parker they're chasing these flavors that this consumer is saying right now they like and his argument is in a few years those flavors are going to be dead no one's mm-hmm. going to be chasing those flavors anymore and a lot of producers who made drastic changes in order to adapt their wines for that flavor profile are going to then wonder where they went wrong yeah, so one of the
1: reasons, one of the problems is because for me, having written about organic environment for 20 odd years, is the, the people that you're talking about have got into that aspect of, of wine, have, have really done it really just via winemaking, buying some amphora, doing yep. some skin contact without any real knowledge
0: exactly about
1: how these wines should be made or have been traditionally made. So it's all about the viticulture. Exactly. And it's not about the winemaking. It's not about which toys you buy uh, for your little um, game show in the, in the winery. It's about <laughs> hard flipping work
0: out in the vineyard. Exactly. Uh, our statement is a natural wine, you shouldn't know that it's natural. That it should be so well made that it, you shouldn't know it's natural It's wine. quite a good one. And I think a lot of these wines right now, you clearly know because there's lots of faults. And because people don't really know what they're doing, it's just trendy.
1: Yeah, and it's, standard, it's standardization, by the way. I mean, for me, I was living in Bordeaux, making wine in Bordeaux in the mid-90s when the Parker thing took off. And you couldn't tell a Santa Steph from a Santa emilion because yeah. they were just absolutely identical. And also from conventional viticulture, clearly. And now if you give me three natural wines, the extreme examples, not all, i am just say so we don't get millions of letters of it. And you say one of them is from from, say Chile. One of them is from France, and one of them is from I don't know Austria. And I literally can't tell the difference between them. I, where Where are they from? And someone has a gun to my head. Guess the hemisphere.
0: I don't know. Pull know. the trigger. I really could not tell you. And that surely should not be the point. I completely agree with you. I think it's masking terroir. It's taking away from some of the art that a lot of winemakers have of showing what their style is. But how do you how do you say that to your audience without talking about
1: masking terroir and art and things like that? I I mean, so in, so we
0: explain to them what that means. We explain to them what terroir is. But we say you know when when you're trying these. different different... different wines, terroir means it tastes like it's actually from Tuscany. And here's what it means. It means when you drink lots of Tuscan wine, you can say, ah, here are these characteristics that I pick up. Instead, if all you get is brett, then you're not going to be able to to say, this This reminds me of a wine from the region of Tuscany when I was there, etc. So we, we try to explain terroir, too, in a way of saying, you know, you know, so this is from the, the point of a New Yorker, right? You know what a New Jersey tomato tastes like in the summer. It's like everyone wants to have New Jersey tomatoes because they're the ripest, juiciest, etc. So you that is terroir through the tomato. <laughs> so here's how you understand what terroir is through grapes. And then I think it's something that becomes easily accessible for people. And that's what we've tried to do when we created VinePair in the first place, was creating a publication that spoke to this next generation, that gave them the stories they wanted to read, the content they wanted to share, and it was also accessible and understood that most people don't come in with knowledge. They want to gain the knowledge through publication. Actually, that would be my largest criticism of of some of the older publications. Is I think they're only written for a person who has taken some classes, who's who's worked with wine experts, etc. They don't explain things, and so or, it, or it's already in the industry, right? So the publication's inaccessible. So you're not gaining any new readers that way. You know, we have we have articles that yes are for the more advanced person who's an obsessive who has a collection, who travels all the time, and every time they travel goes to a winery or a distillery, etc. But we have a whole beginners 101 section on. On the site as well. That's really there to guide you along and not make you feel stupid. You know, millennials especially really don't like feeling dumb. I think there's this idea of the schooling that we've been put under for our entire lives and the testing and, and wanting to always be a high achiever. So if you go to a publication that makes you feel stupid, you're not sure. Gonna make but it isn't, read isn't
1: there a little bit of one-upmanship in Natural at the moment? I'm getting back to Natural, but but you know, my I made a wine and it contained uh, 15 grams of sulfite.
0: Well, I made one that had 13 mm, grams of sulfite. So yeah, in the super geeky section of the. Of the wine world, and those are our readers as well, but they probably don't interact with the, the large majority of my reader. Wouldn't
1: you um, I mean, I always thought the easiest thing would be to get people to come on trips to actually get them to make wine for a month or two, because it's just the easiest way to learn. You know, I mean, when I was learning about wine, I worked in wineries and I just I saw I knew all the cheats and yep. all the tricks and all the dishonest stuff that would go on, <laughs> and it basically boiled down to bad wine growing. You think you've got a, a vineyard out there with lovely soil, but you've turned it into a car park. It's it's like cement. It's like an airport runway. You are going to have to break the law in the winery it's pretty simple you can't make a wine from that kind of terroir from that from how you've treated your vineyard so maybe you could do some um, virtual wine growing
0: online with your thing we don't do there wouldn't be for us but I think that there are some businesses now that have done a really great job of of bringing wine making closer to consumers so I mean City Winery in the United States you know is is an amazing business and his his places are doing a lot of what we were doing with Vivo and Vino where he's he's pairing these big bands with wine drinkers but then you can go and experience what it's like to make wine Brooklyn Winery is another one that's doing a lot of these urban wineries in Portland and Berkeley and things like that where does that kind of come out of the kind of craft beer movement as well yeah I mean I think if wine is smart they will copy exactly what craft beer has done what what couple of aspects do you think they would copy so first of all marketing craft beer our content is very evenly split a third a third and a third beer wine and cocktails or spirits i would say that i'm out of the the teams or a team of 15 i'm probably the larger wine obsessive but i really do enjoy craft beer and they're just oh god they're the smartest marketers i mean about everything they understand social every time an article is published about craft beer brand on our site we hear from them within five minutes of it publishing. I mean, they're on top of it. They know, they interact, they're active on Facebook. They understand how to use Instagram. They understand how to talk to these different groups of people. So I think that's the one thing why I should, should try to understand. They are always innovating. They're not tied to certain things. They spend money, which I think is really important. So to the on are, marketing you're yeah. talking about? Or on the production side? On marketing. So they spend money on advertising. They spend money on PR. They, they really invest in bringing people in on design, right? So creating labels that feel accessible, that aren't old, that aren't stale. But isn't one advantage to beer though is they can
1: make a consistent product all year round. So that is the
0: advantage, right?
1: Whereas in wine you can really only do it once a year, right? But they
0: tell that story and I think wine should tell the story, right? So explain. Look, we get one shot. I think there's a lot of wineries that don't do that. I also think there's a lot of wineries that try to mask why they do certain things. I was having a conversation last night with two people who are also going to be at wine to wine and we, we talked about how especially the larger wine producers they never talk openly about how they actually created the wine, right? Like just be honest and say, we did a focus group. We tested these five flavors, and these five flavors tested well, and so therefore, we went back into the vineyard, and we grew the grapes in a, in a specific way in order to achieve those flavors. But
1: aren't they caught between two, two stores? On the one hand, they want to, quote, express their terroir. Well, on the other hand, they've got, got a business to run. Yeah. On the other hand, they got they read in magazines, some of which I kind of write for. But they think, oh, the critics like
0: this particular style, so we're going to follow that trend. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many. At this point, though, there's so many different critics. I mean, yes, you have the older school critics that are still like the thing they like, right? You have the venison of the world and the spectators etc they're all going after a certain flavor profile you have us you know we have a whole review section we're definitely the, the styles that my critics tend to like are much less intervention much less oh purity of fruit all that kind of stuff that you just sort of pick you can pick and choose so be honest like we're going after the audience that reads the critics that we you know you can even say it that way so we're a napa california producer and we're creating heavily oaked wines because our readers read these publications and they have been taught to like these kinds of wines so we create these kinds of wines or we just like making these kinds of wines or we like drinking these kinds of wines
1: yeah we're often quite difficult to drink right. i think
0: and i think you know in beer they do a really good job of saying we make this because we like to, to drink it even if or they say like look Right now, the biggest trend in beer is New England IPAs. So it's a really cloudy, very fruity style of IPA, and they say like we're making it because it's selling. And I mean, but they said we still are making a very good New England IPA, but we're making it because it's selling.
1: But that's what's happened though with with um, orange wines, isn't it? It's um, you know whether they yep. whether they taste like shit or whether yes. they taste vaguely drinkable. And <laughs> some of them do, and the ones that are drinkable well, are delicious. But yes. the majority really are not. They're standardized product because they all suffer from the same micro faults effectively yeah. it's just another standardisation by the back door but you still get people buying them and, and eulogising about them so if, if customers members of the public for better or for worse like drinking the 100 point over Parkerized quotes wine or the natural wine made by somebody that has no experience working with a terrible vineyard and makes a horrible wine and somebody likes that how are you going to make yourself relevant when you've got those sort of extremes if you like where people have put their spade in the ground and say right this
0: is what I drink and you're not going to change me so I think you have to you have to find your audience and then you have to Be good at communicating to that audience, so I think that is one thing that craft beer does as well, well as as well, well as well. They're really good at saying, okay, so I'm this brewer, and I'm obsessed with stouts. So they find the other people who are obsessed with stouts and they become known for that and they, they communicate back to them and they advertise in the publications that that reader reads and they and they really just own their area. And, you know, there are certain brewers that want to be large, right, the Sam Adams of the world, et cetera. They want to be huge brewers and there are certain craft brewers that are also okay with making a lot, li- you know, a life for themselves and having the market share they have, et cetera. And I think that that's also important for wine is, is saying, okay, I don't have to be as big as some of these huge conglomerates, but they're also really open and in the craft beer world too, that the conglomerates control everything and they push back. They push back really loudly against it. I think, I don't know, I mean, just in the tasting, we were, you know, I was overhearing the discussions about the conglomerates in Italy and like these large producers that control the regulations and the rules and things like that. And the, you don't hear that as much as an American consumer. You don't know that that's what's happening here because the smaller producers aren't talking about that. They're not saying, look, my hands are being tied with the kinds of wines I want to make because the large, you know, companies with the money are are preventing me from doing that. In American craft beer, they let you know it over and over and over. Over again, we can't do certain things. We can't buy certain hops because the large companies are restricting our access to these things. And so, you know, you have especially a millennial consumer rallying around the little guys and saying, "Okay, well, we're going to support you because you want to do something creative that you're not being allowed to do."
1: Yeah, although in in Europe, I mean, it's not like the the bigger companies are controlling the actual production side, but they're certainly no. control, they're controlling the message in yeah, some in the, some the ways.
0: And and I guess they're controlling the DOCs in certain ways as, or certain you know rules and regulations. But then producers can opt
1: out and become the kind of right. Um, um, I'm Mister or Mrs. Alternative, and I'm. I got kicked out of the domination because even though my wine is typical, it's not oaked enough for for them. Therefore, I'm going to plow my own furrow. Right, but then you have to be willing as that producer to, to really push that message. Yeah, and that's where that's where the problem lies, isn't it? Because they either don't know how to do it, or they don't have time to do it. Exactly. Or they yeah. don't know who their audience is. Exactly. Particularly if they don't speak, say, you know, the English language. Exactly. The
0: North American market. Exactly. I, I think you know I, the, the the challenge with wine that we see all the time as a national publication is there's things one the product has to be awesome and it's sometimes not two you have to be able to be willing to put some sort of marketing muscle behind the product and three distribution. And I think it's it's really understanding that you have to own all three because we'll, come to, we'll have producers come to us who've spent a lot of money on PR and they try to pitch us a story and we'll say, well, look, you know, where are you distributed? And they'll say, oh, we're in New York and LA. So, okay, like our readers is pretty big in New York and LA, so fine. Like, maybe there's a story there. But really a smart decision for you would be to go to the local newspapers in New York and LA and pitch a story there because we're national. And so if my reader in New Orleans or Atlanta can't get your wine, they're really frustrated by reading an amazing article about your product and then they don't really have any way to get it. And I think that's definitely the challenge, at least in the American market. I think it's different in other markets because our three-tier system is the worst. But you know, if everyone who wants to be in America also wants to have all this press in America and things like that, you do have to think about all three of those things in order to achieve those goals.
1: Yeah, the distribution side is is quite tricky. And also in Canada as well, isn't it? It's terrible, yeah. It's not easy.
0: Um, Is there anything we've missed? I mean, you know, as as a publication, we really try to write stories that touch on larger themes. So um, like a big story we ran last week was all about how Los Angeles is in a, a sort of a drinks renaissance. And the reason for that is because of Uber. You know, looking at, at tech and how it's influencing the drinks world too, it's really fascinating. Well, you mean
1: people couldn't get driven home? Having yeah, had so a couple-
0: people, people didn't really drink that much in Los Angeles. You drank in homes. It was, a, it was a big drinking culture in homes because you didn't feel comfortable having one more than one or two and then driving. But now that Uber's so ubiquitous in Los Angeles and Lyft, these amazing bars are opening. Amazing wine bars, amazing cocktail bars, awesome craft beer bars, and they're changing the dynamic of LA. So really well-known somms are now moving to LA and sh- setting up shop. Great mixologists are opening up places in LA. And it's all because of the accessibility of cars.
1: But if people want wine by the glass, generally they want something that isn't too heavy. Do you think that's gonna have an impact further north in the in the Californian wine industry in terms yes. of styling?
0: Yes, I think Napa, but what Napa will always have going for it though, is tourism. It still is, consi- is going to continue to be seen as this amazing tourist destination for even my generation, right? You just, Napa's supposed to be amazing. It's- It's beautiful. Sonoma. I mean, Sonoma is doing a really good job, actually, of differentiating itself and saying they're like the cool kid Brooklyn version of Napa. So actually, Sonoma is getting a lot of buzz of where people want to travel. But I do think that that's also important to remember from an Italian perspective, right? Like American consumers, millennials are never going to not think that Tuscany is a place they want to travel to. They're never going to not think that Piedmont is a place that they want to be. So if you're in those regions, take advantage of that. If you're in regions that people don't know as well, then you, you have to do some education as to what makes you special, what makes you cool. You know, the tasting right now, Trentino, like I guarantee you that if I asked most of my readers, they have no clue where that is. So it's not even the understanding of, of all these different grapes. It's also simply just explaining that this is our region. This is our place. This is what we're known for. This is the kind of food, you know, I would guarantee you the average American, thanks to the majority of Italian food coming to America being, you know, from the South, think that's the cuisine across the entire country so it's it's just doing you know good pr and marketing on your own to sort of educate what your what your food style is what your place is and then i think people get this attachment to the wine too, want to drink it and and continue to enjoy it
1: right for christmas I, i i give you a choice of two presents that you can have okay okay either i give you a craft brewery Uh Uh-huh. Or I give you a vineyard. What are you going to take?
0: So I get to buy one. No, no,
1: no, I get to to give you one.
0: I take a vineyard. Really? Yeah.
1: Interesting. Yeah. You you grow grapes but drink beer in the evening.
0: Isn't that what everyone does? Uh, (laughs) Maybe not so much in Italy.
1: Um, When I worked in California, yeah, we did drink a lot of beer. But uh, All right. I just want to say thanks to our guest today, Adam Tita, who is the CEO of Vine Bear. Uh, based in new york wish you every success with that and with your beer and your cocktails and your wine and also if you ever get back into the kind of music side of things let us know i will i will thanks so much for having me no worries thanks for coming thanks bye
0: follow italian wine podcast on facebook and instagram